Hello, everyone. You're very welcome to um, a panel discussion that I think is really timely. It's hosted by uh, WIFT Ireland and the Writers Guild of Ireland. And I'm Susan Liddy, Chair of actually WIFT Ireland and the uh, Equality Action Committee of the Writers Guild. Before we kick off and discuss anything to do with the panel, although I should probably remind you of the title of it, which is Gender and Class in the Irish Screen Industries, Double Trouble. So before we talk about that with our really interesting panellists, I'd like to give you a little bit of background on each one of them. And they have been very slow, some of them, to give any information. So um, I- I'll do my best. Uh, I- I'm, uh, and I- Jordan Jones was particularly bad. I've had to add a few things in here or you would have thought I had something against her. Uh, <laughs> Carmel Winters, Carmel Winters, the award-winning writer and director for stage and screen. Her most recent film, Float Like a Butterfly, won the International Critics Award at Toronto International Film Festival. Her previous film, Snap, you know, has been critically acclaimed and her theatre plays similarly and they have premiered in the Abbey Theatre and beyond. Dave O'Brien is Chancellor's Fellow in Cultural and Creative Industries based in the School of History of Art at the University of Edinburgh. He's published widely on cultural policy, urban regeneration, cultural work, public policy, social mobility and cultural consumption. And his most recent book, co-authored with Dr. Zorian Brook and Mark Taylor, is Culture is Bad for You, Inequality in the Cultural and Creative Industries. Moving now to Roshin Carney, a multi-award winning writer, director, producer in film, TV and theatre. After a successful 10 years working nationally and internationally, Roshin took time out with, with her three children and she returned to film in 2014 and has worked on a number of shorts, including The Family Way, No Dogs, The Ferry, Run and Paddy in different roles, I should say. She is an associate producer on the children's show Gamer Mode for RTE and writer for Smashing Times Theatre and Film Company and also currently in development with uh, comedy drama RIP. And I don't know if I'm saying that right. If it should be RIP, maybe it should. And feature script spoke. We'll ask her about that in a minute. Now, Jordan Jones, when I asked her for a bio, told me to say actor and activist, but I don't really think that's right. So Jordan... Um, filling that out a little bit, Jordan played the leading role in I Used to Live Here, directed by Frank Berry, when she was just 14 years old and she was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role uh, in IFTA in that year. In that year also, she won the Dublin Film Critics Breakthrough Award. She played the leading role of Emma in Metal Heart for Treasure Films, Hugh O'Connor's directorial debut, for which she won the Bingham Ray Best New Talent Award at the Galway Film Flat in 2018. She's also appeared as Lily in the TV series. No, is it Lily or was Minnie? I can't remember. Minnie. She has a Minnie Man. in Rebellion, Dead Still, and a guest role in The Alienist, uh, Angel of Darkness. And uh, I'm sure we could be here uh, for a long, long time talking about the other uh, wonderful achievements of all the panellists. But we, I think it's more important to move to the subject at hand. So... What, what what is the subject at hand and why class and gender why are we why am i even doing that now and i suppose the reason that i am doing it is because there was a shocking statistic that emerged in the magazines and in newspapers that even those really who didn't know much about research were quoting and that was that in research coming out of the uk 53% of those working in the screen industries there were from a privileged background now I'd like to move to Dr. Dave O'Brien. Um, uh, thank you very much for joining us, Dave, and you've done a lot of work in this field. We want to kind of move from 
this, the research, if you like, to the, to the lived experience of our panelists. But Dave, I'd love if you kicked us off by telling us, first of all, what is a privileged background? Yeah, that is a, is a great question. Um, and it reflects both some um, discussions that myself and the, and the team that worked on that report had, and also some of the problems of trying to talk about social class. So um, at the kind of like most social scientific, we might divide class up by income bands or by types of occupation. And there are like really kind of technical codes that you use for types of occupation and where those types of occupation relate to other types of occupation that are similar. And then from those, I guess, kind of statistical approaches, we try and find language that makes sense to people. So yeah. one way of talking about that is like working class and middle class. Yeah. But even within that language, um, often things like middle class don't travel very well mm -hmm. outside of the UK. Um, and um, even within the working class, middle class, you still need a, a, another category in the, the intermediate group who don't fall into those uh, to working or, or middle groups. So in the report, we tried to use something that would both be a kind of, a, you know, a, a normal everyday bit of language. So the language of privilege, but also to try and signal that um, we're not being kind of pejorative. You know, we're, we're not mm -hmm. making judgments here, but we're trying to say that one of the issues we're trying to flag up is the fact that people whose parents were maybe doctors, lawyers, whose parents were working actually in, in the film industry, have a particular advantage. They start from a position of privilege as compared to people whose parents were maybe bus drivers or, or cleaners would do in uh, kind of working class jobs. Mm. So our use of the term privilege is, is a signal, I guess, both mm. of class position, mm -hmm. um, but also to kind of get people to think about the advantages, mm. the uh, higher levels of, of resources mm. that people mm. come into the film industry with. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I mean, I, I, I've I've been in, I've I've been privy to some of these conversations, both anecdotally and and, and research wise, uh, where people might use different language, but I think they're talking about the same thing. They might say things like upper class, and it's usually men. I have to say, they usually talk about upper class guys, and it's often in relation to upper class guys working together, seeking each other out. Now, I don't know. Uh, I, I'll come to you. Maybe you will say. That's that. Uh, that doesn't ring a chord or strike a chord with me. So if I could move now to to to, to Carmel Roshin and Jordana, we'll, we'll start with Roshin simply because she's sitting nearest to me on my screen, um, and that's how uh, that's how spatially uh, challenged I am. Um, and I wonder, Roshin, starting with you, then, do you recognise any of the things that Dave is saying? Do you think that the Irish industry is populated by using the term a privileged group? Um, it's certainly there, but it's. It's kind of, I mean, I suppose it depends on what you mean. Um, there's an awful lot of people that's sort of in the tech and things have changed an awful lot, like from when I started to now, it's completely different. Um, I think access in can take a certain amount of privilege or vice versa. I think if you are in a situation where you have other stuff going on, like if you're a carer, if you have anything like that going on, um, it gives massive disadvantage. You know what I mean? Because the expectation is, to work for quite a long time for no money. And you can only do that if you have a level of privilege, mm -hmm. even if that's being able to work part-time and not contribute to a household, that's mm -hmm. a level of privilege that's there. Mm -hmm. So, and then if you have a caring responsibility on top of that, you're doing, you might be doing three different jobs to try and get there. So the, with the expectation of generally very long hours, 
no pay for a long time. Yeah, you have to have a certain level of privilege to be able to do that and be that yourself by, you know, working in your cafes or doing whatever you can do to do that and not having other responsibilities on top. Yeah. That would be it. Yeah. Yeah. Karma, what do you say? Well, my own background, Susan, Mm. would be that I've got, I'm my, my father was a bookmaker, but more than a bookmaker, he was a gambler. My mother was, she, we'll call her a housewife, but actually that term is so inadequate. Mm. But she didn't typically earn money except through selling makeup or Tupperware mm-hmm. or Hoover's. And there were 12 kids in a very small house. Mm. But being a bookmaker, he didn't work for someone else. And being yeah. a gambler, there was kind of attitude to money that was cavalier. You'd, you know, and we lived, my mother said if she wrote a book, she'd call it Feast and Famine. So we survived, you know, the highs and lows of a house led by a gambler, you know, and uh, it, which is why I ended up in this gambling industry, which is, a, yes. you know, it is a gamble. And I think to survive it, you either have to have a lot of privilege built into your kind of wider structure or else you've got to be kind of bomb proof, able to live on nearly nothing with great resourcefulness. And you can see already. So you, if you have the advantage of privilege. It's massive. And certainly it's a massive um, advantage if you're going to meetings in London, where a lot of the people who come into the kind of even the first rungs of the ladder of producing do tend to come from a very privileged background. So you're speaking a different language already now. And I think it's more marked in producing than it is in other areas of the industry. And the producers are the gatekeepers. And even people coming in quite unqualified into the first rungs are the people you may be meeting early in your career as a maker. There is a gatekeeping function there with the privilege. But I think on the other side of it, you have you have a huge amount of tenacity coming from the kind of school of hard knocks, we'll say. And so I'd say that in itself. And plus, I think the producing, I suppose, class almost recognised that the outsider coming from a more working class background or an underclass background has access to the kind of experience that the public resonate with. So we have those advantages, but we don't have those privileges, as it were. But the word I think we need to bring into the conversation more or less immediately is cultural capital. Because I think what gets, if you go to a meeting, immediately what gets kind of um, flushed out is your amount of cultural capital. And when I went, so I would have been second youngest of 12 kids and I had an elder brother at the top of the family who got a scholarship to go to college to do accountancy. So something that would kind of lead to money, which, you know, people of a lower middle class background will be Amy, if they do get to college, will be looking for a guaranteed income. If the family are going to invest or the wider structure is going to kind of release one, they got to earn. So they wouldn't be likely to be going off doing you know, drama and English like I did. But when I got to Trinity College, I really was culture shocked because I didn't even know that I was so lacking in cultural capital. Now, in my interview, even to get in, and I was interviewed in Manchester as well, which was from a the guy who interviewed me in Manchester was from a real grassroots working class culture. And you have in Britain, the working class having access to cultural capital, well, particularly Scotland, actually, but some of the cities where like industrialization brought a certain class consciousness. But rural Ireland, you don't have any even, you don't even have a name for class. And what I was experiencing straight away in, in my intake interviews and then in getting there was, I'd never been to a play. 
bar, the local drama group, if they put on one once every two years, that's the only play I'd seen. No one I knew was an artist. No one I knew was a writer. So I was really lacking in cultural capital. I didn't know the reference people were using. Mm. The notion of garden parties, even the notion of um, wonderful clothes from secondhand shops. And it's like, it's not always the capital that's the real um, requirement. It's the cultural capital. And okay. that's where I found myself really mm. lacking. Right. And, and I find now knowing that this panel was on today, I couldn't believe how populated my dreams were oh, of yes. images, of environments, of cultural capital. Certain types of houses, certain types of accents, certain types of dress. And, you know, where there is just a higher stress level, certainly involved mm. when you're outside of that, participating within it. Yeah. And I know okay. you yeah. have a lot to say about that. Yeah, no, we'll get back to that, Carmel. Uh, that's, re that's really interesting. Uh, Jordan, what are you thinking so far? What, what do you make of all of this? Do you buy this thing about the privileged group? I mean, do you buy it? Not that Dave is making it up or, or anything like that, but do you think, in other words, sometimes we kind of feel, oh, that's just somewhere else. That's a UK thing. Or do you think there's there's parts of it that you can see operating around us here? Um, I guess when I'm on set, I am approached by a lot of people that would be kind of like, um, I'm not sure what term we're planning on using here, but middle class, I'm going to throw out there. Um, and I didn't think about it much until I start to kind of like in little doses meet um, people from working class backgrounds. And I was like, oh, wait, you're actually very few. And when I did meet them, it was like a shared kind of like thing that would bounce off each other of like, I can't believe we're here kind of thing or like mm -hmm. look at us being here. And like I didn't have that like bounce back with someone that wasn't from a working class area. And like we didn't even have to say it to each other, but it was kind of like look at us and isn't this deadly and like you know even even the trailer and all like it would just be a completely different reaction like look at us with a trailer and like you know we would count everything and so um I definitely picked up on stuff like that I think even like in terms of my mom so like when I'm in what uh, Dave was saying about like um having kind of like uh, a parent with an occupation that kind of like helps your access into like uh, the arts and stuff. People in interviews, even with me today, will kind of talk, uh, and I don't mean this in any sort of shady way, but we'll talk about my mom as if she had got her occupation as a centre before I was an actor. And actually, it's the dif different way around. I managed to become an actor before my mom uh, became uh, a senator in the Shannon. So I think often people assume that my mom was a senator and I kind of got into the arts and aren't we so lucky kind of thing. But um, I happened to do it when um, I used to live here, the first one when I was 12. And uh, yeah, even thinking about that, it's like, I think the reason that done so well as well is that it wasn't a love-hate situation like they cast someone that was from the place that they were trying to discuss. So I was able to bring in that kind of, um, for anyone that doesn't know, I used to live here, it's centered around like the ripple effect of suicide in uh, working class areas. And um, yeah, I just brought a lot of experience and I think that's why I felt so raw and honest to people and that's why like it resonated. So yeah, that's that's just what was going on in my mind. Um, just kind of like how people assume my mom was before me. Yeah, and, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so. interesting, um, Jordan. Um, I'm just kind of 
wanted to come to you, Dave, because it's actually picking up on stuff that Carmel was saying there, because, you know, your report in a way, is it fair to say, gives voice to the statistics, we'll say, because, you you, you know, there's a lot of engagement with people telling you, uh, you know, telling you and your and your uh, co-authors, uh, you know, how they feel or how they felt with their experiences and so on. But there, there's talk there about uh, education and not just education in the way that you might think I'm going to school to get my leave insert or, you know, and, you know, but education in the sense of the right school and delivering the kind of soft skills that are going to help you get in and get on. And I want you to talk a little bit because, you know, you haven't the right vocabulary, the cultural references that Carmel that you were talking about there, the polish, like you look as if you might fit into the workplace. Okay, being the devil's advocate here, Dave, is that not very superficial? I mean, surely an employer is looking for, you know, do you have the skills to do this job? Have you been to college so that you've learned something about the job? I mean, those soft skills, how important do you think they are, Dave, we go to? I'm sort of conscious that I'm, I'm probably going to end up giving kind of a series of, of academic uh, answers. So there's an explanation for that in terms of the way the labour market works in film. So we, you'll all be familiar. Um, and, you know, Rasheen, your, your comment was really uh, useful on this about, you know, film is really fast paced, it's project work, you know, there's those moments where you're like, we've got a green light, we've got to be on set next week, who do I know, who can I phone up, you know, we've got a major investment, we absolutely, you know, need to deliver in this short space of time, so who do I know, who can I, you know, kind of call on that I can totally trust and I, and I know is, is going to deliver for me. And the problem is, is that, I guess, kind of set of labour market conditions means that um, we end up without that, whether you'd call it like meritocracy or skills-based hiring or, you know, people who can do the job or, or, or whatever. And we end up with much more kind of network-based hiring. It's much more to do with who do you know. And the issue there becomes who do you know often reflects, well, who did you go to college with? Um, you know, who is part of your kind of wider network, particularly in London or in LA, you know, for, for the two kind of crucial bits uh, of the global film industry. And then underneath that, and I think this is the slightly kind of nastier version of, of cultural capital that, that, that Carmel has been, been talking about, is a sense that people that you might maybe don't know, people who aren't part of your networks, people that don't share your cultural references or whatever, they're like risky, you know, they're a risk for your project. And the trouble is, is that because of the way um, that the film industry is dominated by whether you'd say people from affluent backgrounds or you know middle class backgrounds or, or privileged backgrounds, people who are maybe from working class origins or you, you know kind of more generally in the UK, um, people of colour and in, in certain occupations, uh, women as well, are deemed to be kind of risky. And so you know that sense of there's a lot of money on the line. We've got a short kind of you know time scale for, for this film or television project we can't take any risks that allows particularly actually you know and, and Carmen is spot on it allows producers to tell a story of it's not about you know hiring based on skills it's about minimizing risk and people who aren't to be blunt posh white men they're risky and we you know we can't possibly uh, be taking those risks I mean that's you know yeah what no, I just said that, there is yeah. awful and it shouldn't work like that but increasingly in our field work, we ran into that over and over again. Can I hop in and say what yes, about Ireland is that 
since I think Jim Sheridan, and I think culturally he mm. has been remarkably significant, there has been a tradition of working class storytellers right. working within Irish film. And, and um, there has been a model, a role model for working class men to aspire to be filmmakers, but it hasn't um, shaken down to working class women in the same way at all. And what was interesting is that film for a long time was preoccupied with glamorizing notions of masculinity, that then um, working class um, I particular trope of masculinity became included in that as a hyper masculinity trope. And I think that worked in some ways, I think I'm delighted it opened spaces for working class men because you see, I actually know quite a few working class Irish men work doing great work in Irish film, um, but it has contracted the space for women. And specifically, I would say there is a complete unknown around the rural Irish woman. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think in kind of faceless occupations like writing, television seems to be less um, punitive of that unknown because television is sort of always looking broadly. But unfortunately, in Ireland, we've had the kind of route being true from film. Ironically, you know, there's been a bit more uh, financial support available for film. So that the gatekeeping has been pretty tough, I think, on, um, on women, definitely. And women without significant, I would say, the type of privilege that has helped women would have been uh, parents, or family members very high up in the industry. And, you know, they're still getting it tough, but they have had, they have had just that bit of cultural capital mm. going forward. Mm. But, but I would say as regards, um, um, I, I think it's not to say to anyone listening, it can't be done. Of course it can. And we're all, we're doing it, but undoubtedly those barriers exist, mm. particularly for working class women mm. in Ireland. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, two, two, two great questions or observations there, Carmel. Um, I mean, this double disadvantage that we're talking about, you know, brings gender into the discussion. And I, I'd love uh, Russian and uh, Jordan to talk about that. But will you just go back, first of all, the two of you, and just say um, what, what your own experiences have been, these soft skills, right, uh, and, and that and Dave was talking about, this sort of fit, tying in with this close, ne highly networked industry. Um, <clears throat> whereas I say people would say, oh, in, in people can point out particular production companies to you where they say they, those guys all went to school together. They all came from a certain kind of area. They only work with certain kinds of people. So, so I mean, that has been said to me by producers and I mean there's a host of whole other things we could talk about I mean the BAI report that I, I recently co-authored was for one of the things that jumped out is this idea that you know for someone wanting to get in from the outside first of all a lot of these internships and you mentioned this particular producers Carol a lot of these internships if you want to get in say to production I mean they don't even hold interviews so if you live down the country somewhere and you are an outsider and you want to get known. Basically, the network is so tight that they will ask other people who they know. And the chances of somebody managing to get in there is slim. Now, the other thing is, if you are lucky enough to get in, who's going to who's going to pay for you while you maybe 
work a year or more with no cash. And I think you, you registered that, Roshi. So there's all those kinds of things. And that's why in, in our report, one of the things that one recommendation was, among many others, but that we are going to have to find a way to, to, to for, for somehow a, an organization to take charge, if you like, of changing the industry and giving paid internships as part of reimagining the sector. Uh, otherwise, you really are disadvantaging people. But, but Roshin, can I start with you first? This idea that, you know, um, your accent or where you come from, all that, is it just that it makes you feel uneasy? Not you, Roshin, but just, you know, working class people. Could it be just that it makes them feel uneasy? Or yes. is it a case of that, that you're sending out signals that maybe you mightn't quite fit into that world? It's, for me, like, I am I was brought up in inner city Dublin through the heroin crisis and AIDS. So that was my background. So 70s, 80s, into the 90s. And I had a lot of, my, both my parents worked full-time, both were professionals, but I lived in a very tough area. An awful lot of people I knew and I grew up with, if they actually managed to, you know, a lot of people died. So, like, there was a lot of horrendous stuff going on. Even people who worked really hard, like... I, if I want work experience for my kids, I can ring up 10 people now in my situation and go, yeah, can I've work experience here, there, wherever. They go off, they do their work experience and forth. There's kids I know up in Tala who can't get into their local shop to get work experience. Do you know what I mean? Like the, uh, every step of the way can be made more difficult. Mm. And we, there's lots of stuff and you were talking about gym stuff and the inner city stuff, which is fantastic. But there's stereotyping that goes on, which feeds into this, idea of who people are who come from certain areas and that makes their life more difficult and there seems to be like a lack of acknowledgement of that because if you keep feeding that stereotype yeah. then the general population believe a certain way and we all take shortcuts we, I do it myself when I'm writing I take shortcuts to give you know <laughs> oh this sort of person the audience are going to recognize mm. da, da, da. but representation is more than it's the outcome as well yeah, you know what I mean. It's not just what's going in; it's also the outcome and how how that affects society as a whole. And we do have a bit of a responsibility there to look at what we're doing and look at what we're making and look at what's going out in the world and making sure people are not being put in more difficult circumstances because, you know, this is going to sell a hundred million. I know. And, it's and would, you, that, would you like to just say how does how does gender and class for you how do they merge or intertwine? Well, a huge amount of it for me, it, like, I mean, I had caring responsibilities from all my life because I had it because of my family circumstances. But um, it that we know that falls on females. Yeah. Without a doubt. And be that they 12 years of age are into adulthood, it tends to fall more on females. And then certainly when I, I came up through theatre, so I went into Corp VC and then I got a job in City Arts Centre, which was brilliant. And I met a load of people there who I still work with now. And it's fantastic. Right. And that's where I met a lot of the people I work with. And they've been incredible. And people I've met since I went back have been incredible from all over the country and from festivals, you know, and that really that's but like it costs to go to festivals. So you have to have that, you know, so it's, it's always there's always a cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's all was going to be there. And, you know, if you're looking at a course, which I did countless times and it's whatever, 300 quid to do the course, you also have to factor in, well, it's also going to be another 300 quid to pay for childcare, or it's also going to be travel costs, or it's also going to be accommodation, particularly for people outside 
of the city centres. Do you know what I mean? Outside of Cork, Dublin, Galway, mm-hmm. if they're trying to travel to stuff. So that's a yeah. big gap. Yeah. Okay, you know? Russian. Could we go to you, Jordan, and ask you about the, the, if you like, the gender and the class bit, and also about those soft skills, you know, I mean, about fitting in and feeling feeling you have a place there. Talk to me about whether you ever felt that you didn't or... Um, well, like I was saying, the first feature film that i done with Frank Berry um, was all of my community. And I, I'm so happy that, like, he stuck with my community. Yeah. Um, and I remember just, like if we had extras him being like is any of your cousins around and I'd ring up and we'd get my cousins out and it just felt so like we were in this better dealing with such a topic and that made me feel like Frank was really doing it for us as well and he really really cared about it so my first actual experience was like the best I could have ever asked for um I didn't have to worry about fitting in or anything um but then the serious stuff started to happen you know I my an agent called my mom was like uh, Lisa Richards and I was like what's an agent I didn't know what an agent was I I, my mom was wondering why I wasn't like thrilled but it was honestly just like a new world where I I just didn't really know what was happening and uh, I kind of just went along with it and I am a very kind of like head in the clouds type of person so like I I just kind of you know throw myself into situations and just kind of like let the waves take me but there was a moment and I was very young as well so it wasn't like I was proper like observant of like class and uh, issues and stuff but um it definitely was like sitting with me in lots of ways uh that I could like later on kind of articulate but um so that was the, that was the hard thing with me as well is that like with all these issues coming up I was at a very young age um I was I was doing bits like in Rebellion and Resistance, which were like they were asking me to be working class. Do you know what I mean? They were asking me to bring my accent, uh, even though like and then like there was people coming from uh, middle class backgrounds that were trying to do my accent then. So there was a lot of situations where I felt like I very much fitted in because of the roles that I was doing. Um, but it was when the interviews kind of start to happen and uh, digging into my history kind of start to happen and the questions around like where I grew up. And I started to realise sooner and later that my story was being made into this kind of like shocking, like, you know, hard hitting, like, oh, God bless her kind of story. And none of the other people that I was meeting on sets that were from these middle class backgrounds were experiencing this. Mm. And I, I, I was filled with anxiety and totally intimidated by it. My dad is only out of um, prison this year after being in there for eight years. And he grew up in inner city during the uh, the heroin crisis and stuff. And like, so all that stuff started to kind of be brought up and was bubbling and we didn't know what to do. And we were petrified, you know, we didn't want to throw anyone under the bus. There's some questions that poses us against our community as well because of the position that we're in. It was all these very, very difficult uh, kind of topics, uh, n- not knowing how to manage at that age um I remember my um my stepmom my brother and sister's mom um she ended up losing her life to suicide a few years ago and it was constantly being brought up they were more interested in my dad's like heroin addiction and and Kerry being gone than my acting and it just was becoming a place that I I didn't recognize anymore do you know I was I was going on set and I was having fun and I was like you know expressing myself and doing in a very kind of like 
child's dream that I had and it all just started all these kind of things came in I really started to think about my class and like how like the other girls around me on sets weren't having these questions thrown at them or having to manage this and I started to be afraid that it was going to push me away from acting like and um so uh, yeah that's when that's when I started to really think about class uh in acting um so around the age of maybe 14 15 um and then in terms of like uh gender yeah I I did think about things I thought about you know how many conversations I was having in acting that had nothing got to do with a man in the film I'm pretty sure uh that has like a name now or it probably always has I've only discovered it and now I've forgotten it but it's um basically like when you count how many times a woman is a, a has dialogue in a film yeah. and it's not related to a man yes and um yeah, and then then even just like um, you know the whole thing of like diva and stuff. So like, you know, I would see some men on set and they'd be very like, no, I want it this way or quote or lion or this or that, and they're very strong and passionate. And then for me, I'd be afraid of being called a diva or difficult yes, or hard yes, work. Yes, and stuff. that sort of uh, that, that sort of yeah. behaving and, and stereotyping, of course, it is as well, uh, Jordan. But. Um, Gosh, you have been through the mill, and thank goodness you you stayed with it uh, for, for all of us. Oh, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere them. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, in on the soft skills and in yes, yes, Carmen. When you say soft skills around confidence and um, speaking a certain way, essentially you come in from the outside with a huge amount of skills, whether we call them soft or hard. But if you if you do come from any background where it there added stresses what a kid gets from that is massive adaptability mm. massive people skills so it's just down to what skills are perceived mm. as useful and valuable mm. and what accent like I have had the experience Susan mm. of speaking to people for about three times and only on the third time would they realize could they get through my accent to hear the substance of what I'm yes. saying and I've even had people say oh my god you're really smart and when they have been confident enough to unpack that with me they've actually only been able to hear ignorance in my Irish rural accent and in my non-pronunciation of THs there's a whole load of cultural signifiers mm -hmm. now a lot of people change those to get mm -hmm. through the barriers but I won't yes I'm actually I actually feel I have a different type of cultural capital. Mm. I'm representing so many people and so much intelligence other than the affirmed one, which gets back to what Roisin is saying, which, which is it's not good enough to be left in to affirm what's the ideas that are already in place. Yeah. We want to get in with our own ideas. Absolutely. We actually want to get in with our massive skill set. Mm. Is actually, I would say, you're hugely advantaged. Mm. If you can get in at all in terms of your capacity, you're hugely advantaged. Like I would say I've seen public school boy men mm. at work in Britain and I'm stunned that they can progress and advance and they don't have the soft skills. Mm. They actually haven't been parented enough from the age of four they've been at boarding schools. Mm. And I'm stunned that they're producing, performing, they're working at the highest levels of culture. Now, the only way that's working like that is, from, is what Dave is saying. They went to the right boarding school with the right people. I don't envy them as human beings. No. They're quite starved. But they don't actually have a lot of skills. Well, well I guess, Carmel, 
They have yes. maybe what's perceived as polished. Let me read you this quote. They don't even have it, Susan, half the time. Well, I mean, I, they don't, I don't have the character. They don't. I agree with you. But listen, listen to this, guys. This is from this is from Dave's report. If somebody said this, some the posh lot were talking about ex, expansionism and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and they, he was kind of more they're saying in a lift with these people and they were all talking almost this kind of. And now I would like to know, does anybody here wish to speak now to me about the expansionism and the Ottoman Empire? I suspect not. But, you know, that kind of thing yeah. where in yeah. a way, I suppose the point was that they had been to the right schools. They had, if I'm picking this up right, Dave, a veneer of high uh, of high intelligence, a veneer of, you know, uh, really being highly educated. But actually, as Carmel said, sometimes that didn't boil down to much more than a hill of beans, really. Dave, would you would you like to come in on that? So, I mean, th this is slightly complex and uh, it's something we're, we're doing in, in some other project work because, say, I don't know, 40 or 50 years ago, um, dealing with institutions uh, like the BBC or, or bits of the film industry, there would have been an assumption of, um, I guess, a kind of high culture set of references. And it's important to stress that that has changed quite a bit. Um, and, and really now it, it's, I guess, the kind of the display of having lots of different cultural references to be able to kind of like mix up or, you know, talk about Ottoman Empire and The Simpsons and the opera and skateboarding, you know, kind of yes. all together. And, and it's that interesting that, Jordan, what you were saying about being perceived in a, in a very kind of narrow, sort of put in a box or almost, that the experiences we uh, kind of capture in the report, but also in, in Culture is Bad for You as well, sort of show the, the differences between people who have had, uh, and again, this is the capital story, lots of these, you know, really kind of broad cultural experiences growing up and in school and have been told, you know, it's legitimate to be interested in whatever you want versus, I, I guess, a kind of, as is happening a bit in the UK, quite a narrow version of um, high culture being the thing you need to learn. But actually, that's a bit outdated. What, you know, you need to learn now is a range of, of, of different uh, cultural references so you fit in with um, the middle class who have got this this broad range mm. um, of cultural uh, kind of interests mm. and the way they express it as being not at all snobbish you know snobbery is, is a big no um, that you know would be and, and you can see this in the press when either actors or producers make kind of snobbish comments people on, on social media mm. are very unhappy about that it, it is much more a different kind of cultural capital mm -hmm. that in some ways those from working class backgrounds are always kind of playing catch up you know to get the right mixture mm -hmm. and and on that i mean I, i've been fascinated by um, i guess what everybody has been saying about representation um and again being really struck uh jordan by, by what you were saying and, and i guess you know uh carmel to, to an extent as, as well the the idea that you know there are these routes in you can you know have really successful say acting careers but you get quite a narrow range of, of parts a narrow range of possibilities you know the sense of well we want you to represent a particular person a particular place but if you were like you know why can't i you know do another accent why can't i have a you know kind of a, a, a higher class role or, or whatever people get you know a bit kind of kind of cautious and, and similarly with that sense of a particular kind of Irish masculinity from a working class origin being acceptable and being something that might sell globally. But, you know, I don't know, 
a woman from a rural Irish working class background who wanted to write a sci-fi would be like, no way, that's, you know, not, not possible. Whereas those kind of genres like working in, you know, particularly I have a weird obsession about sci-fi being a genre that is meant to be open to everybody because it's full of possibilities, but it's incredibly posh. It's like so posh because the assumption is always if you're working class and say a working class woman, then you want to be writing about what it's like to raise a child in poverty and nothing else. Yes. You know, if you're a working class man, you want to be writing, mm. and this is a massive kind of cliche, but what it's like to kind of struggle to get work and nothing else. And they're the only boxes that um, particularly, you know, we, we're trying to do some work on this. The only boxes that middle-class producers will think will sell. They're wrong about, you know, the markets for this stuff. But it is also, I guess, reflective of a set of prejudices about what is true about working class life and what representations are real and what representations aren't. See, I think what the real issue is that there is no way that um, a privileged group can be trusted with being the cultural gatekeepers. It's as simple as that. We must be our own gatekeepers. We must be. Um, because the, at the end of the day, part of being privileged we all know there's such thing as prosperity consciousness, and it's actually a, path a pathological state to be in. It filters the world in ways that are not reliable and actually are not helpful and not healthy. So, and prosperity consciousness, they've done it with people. Like if you get a group of people counting pieces of paper and someone walks past and for, um, uh, drops a stack of books, the people who are counting pieces of paper, their human instinct is to rush over and help. If you get people counting money and the same thing happens, they don't rush over to help. The act of counting money makes a person insular and defensive. So we've got to actually make sure the, the one thing about the filmmaking and television making is that it's a intensely human business. So therefore, the people who have most actually who have the richest humanity and the richest understanding must be the gatekeepers. Mm. It's as simple as that. But you can't be trusted mm. with people who were sent to boarding school at age five and basically want to escape from the slings and arrow of everyday life because they found it so they actually aren't equipped and aren't skilled. I mean, I suppose, I'm wondering, would you all, I presume, agree that while casting, um, let's say, working class characters, you know, a range of characters from different ethnic minority groups, women, all of that, that we should be seeing those on screen. But I guess like it's the power behind the camera to shape the authentic stories that is really going to, to change that. And, and, uh, and I suppose this is part of all the activism that's going on now, except that it was focused solely on gender because it was so bad here for so long and there were so few women involved. Whereas now we're looking and saying, okay, we've gone so far, we, we haven't hit our 50-50, but we've gone so far, we need to, to sort of broaden uh, the debate. But, but Roisin, would you, would you accept that idea that, you know, when, when let's say, we talked there about rural uh, uh, women that I was mentioning, but do we need a, a diversity of people behind the camera to really make change? Absolutely. <laughs> I think I think without um, a diversity behind the camera, we're missing a shoot. We're, we're not serving our audience. Like it's just, I mean, what's in front of our screens is diverse. Unless you have something similar behind the cameras, you're not going to deliver what 
people want. And we, you know, obviously people watch a range, I watch a range of things and lots of different things and it's great. But um, you also, you miss little nuances, you miss little moments, um, things that are recognizable. Yeah. in what you're watching unless those people are there like I've often watched stuff and I'm there like I'm literally biting my lip and I was like if just this or if just that you know what I mean I know just tiny yeah. little yeah. cultural references yeah. or you know yeah. societal references yeah. were there um that a woman would put in that a woman yeah. would instantly go oh yeah that's going to be mm-hmm. you know yeah. really powerful in that moment yeah. you miss them out so I mean what you're making and what you're creating is not as good as it can be unless there's yeah. diversity yeah, you know, and I was yeah. spoken to. I was speaking to an actor recently who's here, and she's fabulous. And she was like, every call she gets is to play a refugee, and she was like, can someone not just ring me up and ask me to be Mary from the office? Do you know what I mean? Like, why is it always that? Mm. Why do I never get the opportunity to play different roles and develop my craft, develop what I'm doing, you know, have that stuff for showreels for future stuff. It's like, no, it's like, oh, we need a refugee. We, you know, are you around? And that's very limiting on people. Mm. And it's very limiting on creative mm. people who have vast amounts to give. And I certainly want to see it. I want to see what people have to mm. offer. And I think, I mean, obviously being a female, I've seen the difference like through the years, I didn't see, I think in all my years in theatre, I worked with two female directors in 10 years. So it was never, it never looked accessible to me that you could go in and female writers the same. It never looked accessible to me. And then when I had the kids, I may as well not have existed. And then coming back, it was the network that I had met all those years previously who kind of helped me every step of the way in coming back in. And without them, I don't think I would have been able to. And without all the other people that I met, I don't think I would have been able to. But um, yeah, without that diversity, you're, if it's not behind the camera, you're not going to see it in front of the camera. And yet we're back then to the difficulties of to get the expertise behind the camera. You have to involve people in education and training. And also they have to feel that there is a place for them there, that they have something to give, that that's what that they have of... of an accent that's from, I don't know, uh, the Midlands or from Cork or from uh, Ballyfermot, wherever they're from, that that, that, uh, that, that doesn't define uh, where, where they'll go. Um, I'm just thinking, Dave, in, in, in your report, the, this term, the degrees of separation between those from a working class background and anybody in the industry. And I suppose that boils down to saying something like, you know, uh, I didn't know anybody like, kind of like me or feeling it, maybe not articulate. I don't know anybody like me who works there. Is it really for people like me? So in a way that kind of does, I suppose, bring back into consciousness again, the importance of role models, not something we use an awful lot. It kind of, a, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit clunky. But I was thinking recently of um, Paddy Slattery, for instance, because a number of people have been asking questions at these meetings and these webinars that I've been doing about disability. And, um, you know, Paddy Slattery, writer, director, Broken Law, uh, and, you know, Paddy uh, is a wheelchair user since he was in an accident at 17 and he has come through. And to me, it's just such a, well, it's such a wonderful inspirational story anyway. But I imagine that if I had additional uh, challenges like a disability, that I would be absolutely thrilled to see that story. So we kind of need Jordan, would you agree? We need to see something of ourselves, not just on the camera, not just on the screen, but behind the camera too, shaping things, 
in other words, roles that actually have power. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like um, as an actor, you know how much like kind of power uh, the person has behind the camera to kind of set the scene and stuff. And it's all well and good to have the actor there who's diverse, but you need to have someone that has like the image and the vision. And like I was saying, like where I used to live here, where we were all coming kind of like from a working class background, you need to feel the diversity in the room to like create the environment and the space. And you're not going to, like Roisin was saying, like something that a woman might say, oh, that needs to be done or uh, uh, that a man won't is like, uh, that's what we need. There is like that experience and that that person that's accurately able to represent now, it, obviously, I think it's a difficult thing because a lot of people say, like, with the arts and especially acting and stuff, the art of it is to to be what you're not. But I think that, like, even with that being said, there's not enough kind of experience uh, or accurate experience or diversity being brought into the space to even, you know, feel it. Mm-hmm. Because it, when I'm on set, I can very much tell you if I like if I feel it or not. Do you know what I mean? I think every actor in the room would be able to as well. Yeah. I'm I'm just trying to keep an eye here on two questions coming into the chat. I'm not sure who they should direct to, uh, who I should direct to, but let me start with this one. Has this neoliberal government defunding certain art schemes and making it more difficult uh, on the dole added to the to the added to this the problems, I guess. I'm not sure if anybody wants to, and I don't know, would you like to Jordan? Yeah, please. Um, So basically, uh, just to give a little like recap of what my life has been like during like COVID and being an actor. um, I I had applied for COVID, the payment, and because I wasn't on set at the time, and even though I had potential work coming up and stuff, they had told me no, unfortunately. I went on a bit of a rant about James Joyce and how Ireland loves artists but won't pay them. And uh, so that was that. And then... um, I was later on refused uh, disability under like me having a BPD and ASD and I just became like really worrying then like not just on my part but on like other actors part of like really just being run out of the arts like I I know I'm in a position now where I have my mom but my mom is still just uh, she's a senator but she's a single mother at home we're still living in Killinard and like Mm. and so I don't know I'm just I, I got really afraid of like what you were saying about like I don't know see it's a very complicated and different situation with me now that my mom just had to go and become a senator so <laughs> I can't just talk about oh, being working so class anymore but so <laughs> acknowledging her um but I definitely think it would have been even still with my mom and the opportunity that she has I think it would still be so much harder if I didn't just happen to get that role and I used to live here and then everything kind of like run afterwards um because I'm not in like acting classes or drama classes or there isn't like two parents and a great occupation that can just keep money in my account while I figure out what I want to do and try different things and whatever it's not that like you know we have to be on the ball like I was considering a job a job where during COVID like it's it's not for me like and I was considering it and then I had to consider how much time I would have for acting if I was working Mm -hmm. So I literally was drawing like portraits of people like doing commissions for a bit above my pocket. And I, I felt like a true artist. But at the same time, I don't want to feel that struggle again. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Do you want to come in on that, Carmel? Yeah. At one point, there was a scene in film base for filmmakers. And I'll never forget how wonderful it felt 
to have the basic level of income covered for, for being a filmmaker, not by other means. And I remember, I think it was the most functional mechanism you could have possibly provided. And the universal income that's been going to be trialed on artists, and we hope that that will yes. happen. I think it'll be a game changer. I really do. Um, I think it's really essential that, like, I think the grind of poverty can sometimes make you more and more and more inventive. But after a certain number of years, the sustained toll of it is brutal on the health, actually. It really is. Mm -hmm. I think sustaining something for decades is a different ball game to sustaining it for a couple of years. But there's mm -hmm. something I really want to say because this conversation um, is even at risk of it, even though I think we're not doing it, but we're at risk of it. When you're, it's like in these conversations, conversations gen generally, you only have a gender if you're female, and you only have a class if you're working class or underclass. But actually, uh, we should be. Like the pathology is often so in in a, inadvertently the thing that gets named is the problem. So even though we're supposedly solving problems, we're actually creating them. Middle class people. That's why I like actually talking about you know what happens to boys sent to and um, boarding schools at five and becoming cultural gatekeepers. Their class is a problem. Their gender is a problem. I want to talk about those problems instead of always sitting into the seat of, well, here come the women and the working class people to talk about their problems. We actually are massively resourced as a result of our challenges, but the system we're in mm. is actually working against mm. us yes. sharing our gifts. <laughs> yes, and I would agree with that, Carmel. I, I would absolutely agree. Um, if I could go around just for, and we really have only about three minutes, uh, can each of you tell me, can you point to some kind of solution that might address some of what we've talked about today? Roisin, can I start with you? I know <coughs> this could be a whole hour in and of itself. but The early 90s, it was like the dull supplied the income for most artists. Mm -hmm. And we, there was a lot of jokes going around about writers in the dull queue and all the rest. And we all were there and we all saw it. But um Things like the FOSS schemes, the C's schemes, the entrance things that aren't necessarily um, going through college that are accessible to people from, from 16 plus that can look at then going into schools, meeting the transition year students, trying to do stuff through Department of Education mm. and opening the door and saying, you know, this exists and maybe it's something you'd like to look at across the country. I think they're two really important things that just knock down that little wall that people would have to climb over. So they just know about it, never mind anything else. But then really the sort of paid internships and supports in that way. Um, and then continuing supports, because people do need supports further on. It's not just, you can't just make one thing and all of a sudden the world is great. That well, should, work, would you so. be talking there about, you know, introducing the notion of apprenticeships rather than always assuming people are going to go to university? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a, that's the way a huge number of people went into theatre. That's I knew loads of people who left school at 14 and went to working as yep. techies in theatre. They're the people I kind of learnt off coming through. Yep. And that was always acceptable. And then it became unacceptable um, for some reason. And mm going to college is fantastic and it's a wonderful experience and I hope most people get a chance but not everyone is going to get a chance either financially or academically get the opportunity to do that so and then the fun you, you know like one in four families with kids is a single mother 
you are a single parent and 90% of them are single mothers. Mm. Like we have to open up channels where people can find things accessible, where there is care provided, where there's proper errors looked at, you know, just to make it, to make it a little bit easier for okay. the people who have. Okay. All right. Uh, George, any thoughts on, I know we can't solve everything by asking you for something in two minutes, but of the things we talked about today, can you think of any possible solutions for anything? Um, well, I've just been thinking about, I've been trying to build up my own community of like working class actors by just like searching them out, following them on Instagram, asking if they want to do self tapes with me for my own health, for their health to mm. kind of just get the ball rolling and those kind of like, you know, merging together and not, mm. you know, being picked up on our own and brought out to a set, mm. like actually having each other and being mates and creating our own little community. Um, so that, 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 that's just been helping me recently. And, you know, someone that we can also talk about, like Jesus already asking where your dad is as well. Mm. And just that kind of thing can make things, you know, seem a little, little less frightening and like intimidating. Mm. Um, and also just like, I would love to see more stuff in like schools because like while I was in school, you know, I wasn't really classified as like smart or, you know, I wasn't like applauded for my work in like art and you know there wasn't much um, acting going on there was theater from like first to second year but it wasn't really like encouraged amongst the school or anything I think you know and I do understand like most parents are trying to get their kids just past like leaving cert or you know mm -hmm. into apprenticeship or whatever um, and priorities are different because of like uh, life down here mm -hmm. but um, I do think that they would you know if they had I, I think that there is a lack of faith in us or like some teachers might even give up a little bit on us because they're not seeing us going on to toward level education and the arts and stuff isn't encouraged and I think they'd be surprised by how much uh, people would involve themselves in it mm. because even like Karma was saying with the boys uh, in boarding school really we have a lot of character and we do have a lot of experience and we have a lot to say so yeah. I would I'd love to see that implemented into the schools yeah. Yeah, great idea. Carmel, what about you? Well, I'd 100% affirm what Roisin said about those financial safety mm. net and holding spaces and that they're actually not just at the beginning, but that the, art, the career of the artist is perilous throughout. I think she's spot on and that it shouldn't be routed through universities. Mm. So 100% what Roisin said, 100% what Jordan said, which I think is just fantastic, mm. emotionally, spiritually, in terms of confidence, you have to find your tribe. And the tribe is there. We're out there. We're doing the work and seeing each other, affirming each other. And the only thing I'd add, I think Eve said it all, Jordan and Roisin, but the only thing I'd add is to people who recognize their privilege that they bring. It's a tough industry for all of us. I'm sure it's tough for you too. Don't be ashamed of your privilege, but just be generous. Mm. Acknowledge it and be generous wherever you can. And actually, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Sometimes you actually don't know. And yep. listening to those of us that do know. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Carmen. Dave, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything everybody else. Everybody is here seems to agree with what everybody else is saying completely. Yeah, so, so I, I won't repeat it, but I, maybe I'd add, I think audiences have to be much more demanding uh, because the, the, the excuse that runs throughout uh, the film industry and throughout publishing, uh, you see it in, in advertising industry, it happens in the fashion industry, it's there in theatre and in, in music and in basically all of the creative industries is this idea that there's no market, 
You know, we yeah. can't sell that. Nobody wants to buy that. Um, we won't green light that because we greenlit one of those last year and one of those is enough for that segment of the market. Right. And I just think audiences need to be much more demanding and say, we want, you know, different stories. We don't want cliches. Mm. You know, we don't just want kind of, you know, one narrow working class um, rural woman every year um, talking about poverty. We actually want a range of different people. Mm. And it, it's almost a kind of, you know, this won't solve the structural problems of the film industry in the UK or in Ireland or, or, or in America, but a bit of, I guess, kind of ethical consumption might, might be useful. Mm. Okay. Thank you all very much indeed. I really enjoyed that, but I'm so conscious that we've just scratched the surface, haven't we? And I know we're going to be back to it. Uh, but in the meantime, um, thank you so much, Roshan Carney, Jordan Jones, Carmel Winters, and Dr. Dave O'Brien. It was a pleasure talking to you. And until we meet again, Thank you very much and goodbye.